the latter of James, and before Revelation. Now, this passage I have chosen because it deals with the uh, doctrine of the Sabbath day and reminds us particularly that even as people of the New Covenant, people of the New Testament, there is an abiding validity in the Lord's institution of the Sabbath day. We are to enjoy the Sabbaths that he has given us uh, here on earth in anticipation of that eternal Sabbath of rest which God even now is preparing for his people in heaven itself, a rest that will never again be interrupted by the intrusion of sin uh, into the world that God had originally made, the eternal Sabbath of rest. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, that is, the people under the old covenant. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. A quotation from Psalm 95. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a, a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David as was said before, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. This is the word of God. May he indeed bless that passage to our hearts and minds. Now, will you turn with me in the Trinity hymnal in front of you to page 684, I believe it is this evening, 684, as we look together at the concluding two sections of the chapter on worship and the Sabbath day, sections 7 and 8. Now, in these previous Sunday evenings, we have, as most of you are aware, been spending three whole occasions in looking at the first uh, six sections of this great chapter of Christian, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And we have discovered many things about the importance of the worship of God, not least the ingredients of biblical worship being the 
offering of biblical prayer with faith and fervency and desire before the Lord, the reverent hearing of God's word with a view to our obeying it, uh, the listening to the preaching of God's word, the offering of praise, and we saw last Sunday evening too, by implication, the church being under the administration of godly discipline. We've learned too that worship is no longer tied to a particular building. It's not necessary to worship God amid Gothic architecture or the grandeur of Beethoven or Bach, helpful as these things may be. They are permissible, but the moment we begin to depend upon the aesthetics of worship, we have departed or are in danger of departing from true biblical worship, which is to be rendered to God in spirit and in truth. And we've seen on these Sunday evenings that in a very remarkable and succinct way, the Westminster Divines set forth so many of the central biblical principles of godly worship. Now, it's very fitting that these opening six sections were a preface, as it were, to the last two, to sections seven and eight, because our hearts and minds have been prepared, I believe, to understand in a biblical framework now the importance of the Sabbath day. We are to worship God every day of our lives, but particularly and especially the Lord by his revelation in nature, and particularly in his word, has set apart the Lord's day or the Sabbath day as that special season when God's people are to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now let me say as we look at these two sections that they are an area of controversy among Christian people today. There are great sections of the Christian church that view the Sabbath day with great laxity, and they would certainly not be in sympathy with what we are looking at this evening or with what I'm going to say to you, however brief the compass of that instruction might be this evening. For instance, we know that the Roman Catholic Church, which is very specific in many of its requirements as to what professing Christians within that church should or should not do is very lax in the observance of the Lord's Day. It's notorious that if you're a Catholic today, and we don't assume, of course, that all Catholics are evangelical Christians. In fact, sadly, the evidence is that they are probably in a minority. But if you're a good Catholic, all that is required is that you should go to church or go to Mass and having fulfilled that duty, the remainder of the day is yours to spend very largely as you like. Another whole church, the Lutheran church, is also very lax in its observation of the Lord's day. And I was reading in preparation for this service this evening that even in Switzerland, in the Reformed Church in Switzerland and in other parts of Europe, compared with the Scottish or English observation of the Lord's Day, the recognition of the Lord's Day again is often very lax on the continent of Europe. Now, we could say a great deal about practices here in the United States, but I think as we look at these two sections, the message will be self-evident, challenging 
the views of so many professing Christians here in the United States as to what is the proper and biblical way of observing the Lord's Day. Now, what we're going to do with these two sections is notice that section 7 before us tells us why we should set apart one day in seven, particularly and entirely for the worship of God. And section 8, which you notice at once is a shorter section, tells us the leading principles of how we are to set apart that day to the worship of God. So we have the why and we have the how set out in a very clear and very helpful way indeed. So look with me, if you will, at section 7, and we are reviewing both of these sections in the light of this scripture passage that we read earlier that teaches us there is an abiding principle of the Sabbath for those of us who are in Christ and under the provisions of the new covenant. Section 7, as it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all nations, in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Now, this is a beautiful statement, so concise in summarizing the teaching of the Old and the New Testament respecting the Sabbath day that we must take a moment or two to look at it together. And one of the things that you must notice immediately with me is that the Sabbath day is by nature appointed and by the word of God appointed. It has, if you like, a double authority undergirding it and underlining it. The law of nature, first of all, requires that a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. Now, what do the divines mean by the law of nature? And while I looked in several commentaries, even this afternoon before I came to the service, including the very fine one by G.I. Williamson that I've referred to on numerous occasions, I was disappointed to notice that there isn't a clear treatment of the subject of the law of nature. And what I believe scripturally is being said to us is this, that the authority of the Sabbath derives initially from the creation itself. The Sabbath day, beloved, is a creation ordinance. Its beginning is not in the 20th chapter of Exodus, where in the word of God, by a positive and moral and perpetual commandment, as we read, the Sabbath day is inculcated and required as an observation. Its roots are far more ancient, far more honorable, in a sense, than even there in Exodus, as we go back to the order of creation. Now, do you remember that in those early chapters of Genesis, marriage is a creation ordinance established by God, given to all men, not simply to his people, to his elect, to his chosen. And so the mandate to subdue all the earth 
is a creation ordinance. When God said, multiply yourselves and spread through all the earth and subdue it. Man is God's vice regent, charged by the Almighty to look after the world that God had made, creation ordinances. And so you find in the second chapter of Genesis that the Sabbath day is a creation ordinance. When God had finished all his work, he looked at it and pronounced it good in every one of its constituent parts, and then it says the Lord rested upon the seventh day. And it's very clear that Adam and Eve at that stage were to enter in to the rest that God himself was enjoying upon the Sabbath day, the very word meaning cessation from work and normal duties. And that rest into which they entered was suddenly and sharply broken by the entrance of sin and evil into the world from outside, as we have already seen. But the Sabbath was established as a creation ordinance. Beloved, man, even in innocence, needed the Sabbath day. And it's a beautiful reminder that there is a law of nature that requires a due proportion of time to be set apart for the worship of God. But on that day of rest and cessation from normal labor, Adam and Eve in their innocence might contemplate the works and wonders of God and be led into a deeper knowledge of him and a growing fellowship with him, even in their state of innocence in the Edenic dispensation. Now, you notice then that the second thing is that in his word, God has underlined and underscored the Sabbath day as a positive and moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages. Now, let me remind you that what is being referred to here is, of course, the 20th chapter of Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments, where the fourth commandment is at the very heart of that moral law of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In it you shall do no work, not only yourselves, but your maidservants and your men servants. The day is to be set apart for the worship of God because, says the commandment, God himself rested from all his work as he completed uh, the great work of creation. Now, the point is, and I hope that we're all in agreement here this evening, because not all in the Christian church today are in agreement about this, that the fourth commandment is as much a part of the moral law of God as any of the other nine commandments. There are Christians today who argue that the fourth commandment is only ceremonial, but it applies under the dispensation of Moses, the old covenant, But clearly, in this day and age, it no longer applies to us. And passages such as Colossians chapter 2, I believe around verses 16 and 17, are sometimes cited where Paul refers to Sabbath days and new moons and festivals as having passed away for the Christian and no longer being required as observations. Now, clearly, that cannot be a correct interpretation of that text. 
Nor can any appeal to the example of Jesus be correct if the conclusion is drawn from his words, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath also, that Jesus intended to dispense with the Sabbath. The indication in both cases is in the other direction, that Paul in the Colossians passage was referring to Sabbath days in the general sense of feast days, such as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of the Passover, and so forth, as having been passed away because their typology was now fulfilled in Christ. And in terms of Jesus' word as being the Lord of the Sabbath, his own example of keeping the Sabbath day so carefully should lead us to avoid any wrong conclusion from those passages in the Gospels where he deals with the Pharisees' distortion of the Sabbath day, but not with the dispensing of the Sabbath day as such. Now, I say this because it's quite clear in the Ten Commandments that it is a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding on all men in all, all ages. Beloved, the Sabbath day is not passé. May I say that again? The Sabbath day is not passé. If you believe in the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. If you believe in the second commandment, you shall make no images. You are bound to be committed to the observation of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy by the same rationale that requires your obedience to the other nine. This one is of the same genre as the other nine. It is moral and perpetual, not ceremonial and passing. And you notice, moreover, that even the ungodly in the day of judgment will be accountable to the Lord for the way in which they have abused his Sabbath days. Because this command, like the others, is a command upon all men, made in the image of God, made for the fellowship of God, made to enjoy God forever. And the Sabbath day is one of the great means of grace by which they are enabled to do this. And yet, they abuse it and despise it and set it at naught. And as you well know today, those of us who keep the Sabbath with any degree of seriousness are the laughing stock of others in society as we drive out on our roads in Jacksonville and see the boats and the carriages and the trailers and all the impedimentia of pleasure going out on the Lord's Day as though this were a day that was identical to all the rest. Now, you notice further that he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath. Now, it's very interesting how this is worded and how the commandment is worded in Exodus chapter 20 because some uh, professing Christians, notably in the Seventh-day Adventist church, maintain, of course, that the day should always be the Saturday, the seventh day. It was the seventh day under the old covenant. It should still be the seventh day, they maintain, under the new covenant. 
But the wording in Exodus 20 is not to remember the seventh day. It is to remember the Sabbath day. And the emphasis there is not upon the order of the days, but upon the proportion of the days. That one day in seven is to be set apart and sanctified for the Lord's worship and service. And this is precisely the emphasis of the confession here. Appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath. It is not specified that that day must always, without change, be the seventh day. Though that was the day under the old covenant and the day on which God originally rested from all his work of creation. The word Sabbath, as I said to you, means uh, to cease from normal labor and work. And it is to be kept, we read, holy unto him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week. Now look at that statement which again is very carefully guarded. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. When did the Sabbath begin? It began not under the ministry of Moses. It began from the creation itself. It is a very ancient and honorable pedigree, not to say that the command under Moses is not ancient and honorable, but the original goes back further even than that, to the beginning of the world itself. Now, it's very interesting. I have no time this evening to do this with you, but <clears throat> if you go through the whole of the book of Genesis, you find that even in the book of Genesis, it's very clear that the ancient patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph after him, observed a seven-day week. And that in itself is silent testimony to the fact that there was the recognition of the Sabbath as that day which God had set aside from the beginning of time. It's very interesting, too, if you read in Exodus 16, around verse 22 and 23, you find that when the manna fell from heaven, and this is before the Ten Commandments had been given, when the manna came down from heaven, Moses already instructed the people to gather a double portion on the day before the Sabbath in order that they might refrain from doing unnecessary work upon the Sabbath day. For it is, said Moses, the Sabbath which is holy to the Lord. And it is again a testimony to the fact that among the godly and the chosen people of God in those early ages, there was clearly the recognition of that holy Sabbath to the Lord before the word specifically was given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It was the seventh day for the reason that I've already cited. Now, the more important question for us is the second statement here, that from the resurrection of Christ onwards it was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Now, our Seventh-day Adventist friends, for one, maintain, of course, that this change was unlawful. 
And if you have read any of their writings, you will find that they allege in the fourth century there was an imperial decree sent out by one of the early Christian emperors in Rome requiring the whole Roman world to observe the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath. And the Seventh-day Adventists argue that there is no scriptural warrant for the change. It was imposed upon the church from outside and therefore is an unlawful intrusion which we should resist and we should return to the observance of the seventh day. Well, are they right? And the answer, I'm glad to tell you, is that they are not right. In fact, they are severely wrong. Because it's very clear as you read the scriptures, that there are a number of places that indicate beyond any shadow of doubt that by apostolic example, the day was changed from the seventh to the first. Why do we worship on the first day of the week? Not because a Roman emperor imposed something upon us, but because the apostles reading the mind of the Lord established a biblical change which is now mandated upon the Christian church. For example, one of the clearest texts supporting this, and it is cited as one of the proof texts for the Westminster Confession statement about the Lord's Day and the Christian Sabbath, is Revelation 1, verse 10 where you remember the Lord Jesus appeared in that vision of surpassing glory and John fell at his feet as one dead. And we read in verse 10 of Revelation 1 that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And it's clear from what has gone before in the New Testament that the Lord's day can only mean one thing, the day of his resurrection. And it's clear that the apostles early realized the importance of the resurrection of Christ as being so vital and so influential that it warranted the change of the day of rest and worship of God from the seventh day, the creation pattern, to the first day, the pattern of the new creation in Christ when the fullness of salvation had come in answer to all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament and the full purposes of God had flowered in the death and resurrection of Christ. The resurrection day signified the authority for the change of the day to the Lord's day and the Christian Sabbath. Now, it's very interesting in Revelation 1 verse 10 the Lord's Day is a single word in Greek, but is only used in one other place in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul calls the Supper of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, Kyriakos. And it's very significant that as the Supper was an institution by Christ to replace the Passover, it was Kyriakos, it was the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Day is an institution we believe authorized through Christ's resurrection. It is Kyriakos, the Lord's Day. You see this in several other places in the New Testament, Acts 20, verse 7, for example, where Paul conducts worship in a place called Troas, and there is the unhappy incident of a young man falling out of the window after a very long sermon and Paul very wonderfully raising this young man to life again. 
but you see the Christian church worshipping upon the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, you see the offerings of God's people being received on the first day of the week, something which is inconceivable, I believe, unless the church at that time clearly was worshipping upon the Lord's day. And so, you see, we believe there is adequate scriptural and apostolic evidence and witness for the change, and that this day, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Question, is it lawful to call this day the Sabbath, or should we call it the Lord's Day? And I believe the answer, biblically, is that both terms are equally acceptable. It is the Lord's Day, but it is also the continuation of the Sabbath day. It is the Christian Sabbath day. Now, my time has run on so quickly this evening, but let us look at section 8, even though we must do this in a briefer way than I had planned. This Sabbath is then to be kept holy unto the Lord. How do we keep it? We keep it holy unto the Lord. And the word holy, as I'm sure many of you know, hagios in Greek, simply means separate. It is a day of distinction. It is not in the family of the other days of the week in one sense. It is to be kept separate and holy unto the Lord to whom it specifically belongs by his appointment under the law of nature and under the word of Scripture. When men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, stop there. Is this, beloved, how we prepare for the Sabbath day? The Sabbath day begins before the Sabbath day begins. Did you realize that? And it was the wonderful practice of our forebears and a practice I would encourage you to recapture again that they began to prepare for the Sabbath day on the evening before it. And if you read in the wonderful biography by Ian Murray of uh, that great preacher Jonathan Edwards from Massachusetts, you find that he and his family began to think about the Sabbath day and prepare their hearts and minds on the Saturday evening as they shared godly converse together and read the scriptures and spent time in prayer that God would bless the means of grace to them on his day, duly preparing their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand so that nothing might intrude upon the hallowed hours of that day. I remember my Scottish grandfather who died when I was very small, refused even to black his boots on the Sabbath day and would allow none of his children, nine of them, as they grew up, to black their shoes, polish their shoes on the Lord's day. It had to be done on the Saturday evening at the latest before the Lord's day. Now, you might say that is legalistic. I don't think so. It is respect for the day saying we will keep that day as free as possible from unnecessary duties, that it might be holy and separate before the Lord, ordering of our affairs beforehand, seeing as far as possible we are free from maintenance work around the church, around our homes, free of unnecessary duties, 
so that we do not, we continue, only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So you see, the ingredients then are preparing ourselves for it properly, observing unholy rest within it from our own works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. And what it's saying to us is, so far as possible, we should seek on this day to keep our minds free from business concerns, We should avoid going into the office to catch up on work that we haven't got to on the other days of the week. We should avoid doing maintenance work around our homes or on our cars or in our yards. This is the Lord's Day, and things that are lawful and right on the other days are so far as possible to be avoided by Christians who love to keep that day separate for the worship and service of Almighty God. Now it extends, you notice, to our speech. Isn't it challenging? It's so easy on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, to begin to converse with someone else about their car problems or about their work problems or about something else that really belongs to the other six days of the week. It's so easy in our thoughts, even in worship, as you well know, to find the intrusion of things that are alien to the Lord's day, that take us away from the things of God, whether they are business worries or family relationships or the football match that we've seen earlier on Saturday, whatever it might be. And this word of command, remember the Sabbath day, requires a godly attitude and restriction to words and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. But you notice, finally, we are to be taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties and necessities of mercy. Now, let me ask the question as I draw to a close. Is this a realistic standard for 1989? I believe it is, because the word of God is not on some kind of sliding scale, but says the Puritans had the time and the self-discipline to do these things, but we men of the 20th century are too busy to fit in to such demands as these. I believe that their interpretation of this commandment is absolutely biblical and correct. It challenges my practices. It must challenge your practice as well to give up the whole of that day so far as is possible to read the scriptures to read good Christian books of Christian missionary biography and biblical history, to talk with our children about the things of the Lord, to encourage them to read good books and read the scriptures, to be regular in worship morning and evening, to be willing to use our time in relieving the needs and necessities of others as as we visit hospitals or nursing homes or families in need, These activities are the ones that are to be encouraged upon the Lord's day so that this is the ideal and the goal, I believe, beloved, that should be before us the whole time in public and private exercises of worship. 
Now, let me say that this is very wise and wonderful counsel. These men do not come down to specifics. They do not say, you cannot walk on the beach on the Lord's day. You cannot do this or that or the next thing on the Lord's day. Positively, they give the principles to us. And as responsible Christian men and women, we should be able to take those principles and find out what is appropriate conduct for the Lord's day. What does aid us in the worship of God? What does take us away from the worship of God on his day? And to be able responsibly to order our activities in that light. So I would encourage you to view this commandment and these sections in that positive light that things that are lawful on other days we seek to avoid so much as possible on this day and dedicate it in a godly and a biblical way to the service of our great Lord and Savior. May he bless this word to us all for his name's sake. Our Father in heaven, there is much to challenge us here this evening, much in which we assure our own practices fall lamentably short. And even we who minister the word of God and oversee the people of God are so deeply conscious that in that area of words and thoughts at least, if not of actions, we do not honor the Lord upon his day as the scripture requires. But oh, what blessings attend a Sabbath well kept. And so we ask increasingly the grace of our Savior that we may be obedient to his word remembering indeed that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath has been made for man as one of the great blessings of Almighty God, and not man for the Sabbath. So help us to hold that biblical balance in tension and to glorify God in all of our lives. For his name's sake, amen.